other than the fact that I'm hoping that there can be some good advice that you're not getting too late, um, but also just kind of setting us up to recognize parenting is not easy, right? I mean, parenting takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of endurance, patience. Uh, it's really not for the weak, right? Problem is, we're weak, and that's what makes it even more challenging. So I want us to just start this whole conversation here kind of on the same turf, that the reality is is that we need to admit to some degree that we don't know what we're doing. You know, kind of if you think about it, whatever ages your children are right now, it's the first time you've had them at that age. So there's an ignorance to it. We don't know what we're doing. It's like it's the first time you've had a 15-year-old. It's the first time. And even if you've had another 15-year-old before them, it's the first time you had that 15-year-old be 15 years old. So there's this there's ongoing like learning process that we're constantly being reminded that we don't know what we're doing. And I think we just need to go ahead and embrace that. And it doesn't mean that we don't try to glean advice from other people. It doesn't mean that we don't try to understand the principles that God has laid out for how we are to train our children up. But I think it sets the tone for how we're going to engage that, those insights. It sets us up for realizing, hey, even if somebody gives me this great nugget that I can run with and it really works with my 16-year-old daughter, it totally flopped with my 14-year-old son. And kind of we just are able to breathe a little bit and say, it's okay that we don't know what we're doing. If you put the next slide up there, I just want to share with you a little bit of my story because I believe everyone has a story and it's important for us to be able to share it openly. And, and I come from a background where I was part of this church as a kid. I grew up in this church. My, my dad was an elder here at this church. And so I was a, I mean, every time the doors were open, we were here, we were doing something and I was an active kid in the youth group. And yet, at 12 years old, I was introduced to pornography. And it was something I didn't know how to handle. I didn't know what to do about that. It scared me, and I didn't tell anybody about it. Because a lot of times, as a, as a preteen or as an early teenage kid, we don't have a clue about sexuality. We don't have a clue about the things that want to try to destroy us sexually. And so porn is one of those things that can real almost seamlessly kind of come into a little boy's life. And he doesn't recognize the dangers. All he knows is, I don't know what to do with this. And that was me. But all throughout junior high and high school, I spent those years growing in my addiction, my secret addiction to pornography. And so all throughout those years, I mean, nobody knew what I was doing. If anybody had come to this church and looked at my activity in the youth group and things like that, they would have said, wow, righteous kid, check that box. But that's just it. Sometimes what we see on the outside isn't what's really going on on the inside. Now the good news in my life and the good news in, in your life too is that God never takes us at face value. Praise God for that, right? I mean, if he just looked at our appearance and our good deeds and said, well, it looks like this person doesn't need grace or doesn't need help, he would have just passed over a lot of us, right? But thankfully, he looks beyond that and he says, I'm going to look at this person's heart. I'm going to look at their brokenness. I'm going to look at their sin. I'm going to look at all the things that they're carrying secretly. And I'm going to show them what they really need. Because what we really need is something on the inside. Now, I knew this as a kid growing up. I mean, it's one of the great things about this church is that that's what's taught. The grace of God that trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. This church is very much a grace-based church. 
But sometimes just our natural inclination is let's look at what people are doing. Let's just keep focusing on that. And if they're doing things that look good, great. We'll just kind of don't need to worry about those people. And let's just really go over here and, you know, go do our missions trip somewhere else and go do things to the people that clearly look like they need help. And unfortunately what that does is a lot of times in our churches, we have plenty of people drowning right here. But it just doesn't look like it. So when I got into college, I went beyond just pornography. And now it was being sexual with girls. And I eventually got married, believing that that would cure me. Uh, By the way, it doesn't. You bring whatever your junk is into your marriage. It doesn't magically go away. I was really hoping that this was going to be more like the, the, the ring in Lord of the Rings. You know, like there would be something literally magical that would happen when I put it on my fingers. Like, poof, all this other stuff would just go away and everything would be this wonderful world. It doesn't work that way. And I kept putting it on and off and trying to figure out, what, why doesn't this work? It's not working like the Lord of the Rings. Well, anyway, I brought all of my junk into my marriage. I continued looking at pornography. Eventually, I had multiple affairs and even included prostitution and illegal activities. It got bad. And the thing is, the longer a secret stays a secret, the more sin has a chance to grow because it only grows in the dark. And so over time, this thing just began to completely consume my life and destroy everything around me. That's the other thing, too, is that whatever we're involved in that is sinful... We'd like to think it just affects us, right? We'd like to think that my sin is really, that's just it, right? It's just my sin. It's only going to hurt me and whatever. And even then we kind of deceive ourselves. It's not really hurting me. I'm not hurting anybody. The, the problem is, is that anything that we are cultivating in the dark, any sin we're cultivating in the dark, it is already hurting other people. I just wasn't willing to look at that because I was looking at it in terms of, well, if you look at my life externally, even though it was starting to, the facade was starting to crack, it still looked okay. But internally, I was as rotten as a dead man's bones. Eventually, the, the goodness about the grace of God is that when he saves us, he does not intend to leave us in our current condition. I was saved at six years old. And I believe that all of this, yes, was developed in my life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people, that's hard for them to hear. But the fact of the matter is, one of the things, one of the aspects of God's grace is that eternal life is a free gift. There's not a qualification on it. Listen, you trust in Jesus Christ, he says free. Eternal life is a free gift. Because it's a gift, guess who gets to choose how to use it? That's part of his grace too. He's saying you can even mishandle this great gift that I've given to you. It's free, but you can sure mess, up, mess it up. Well, I messed it up. Because I kept giving myself over to sin more and more and more. Eventually, though, he brought me to my knees. He brought me to the end of me. And uh, one of the ways he did that, actually, was my wife leaving. He used that as a catalyst for waking me up to what I was really doing. And when she left, that brought me to my most broken place. And that's one of the reasons our ministry is named Be Broken Ministries. We believe there is a good aspect to brokenness. That when we finally admit we don't have it all together, we don't know what we're doing, we're making a big mess of this, then we have an attitude of humility and repentance in which God can actually begin to transform us. And that started a process of recovery for me. My wife and I were separated for nine months. Miraculously, God healed our relationship. My wife is actually sitting right over there today. We've been back together over uh, 14 years. We've been married for almost 19 years. 
And uh, we have three children, and I've been doing this ministry full-time for the last 11 years. I like to, I told your students, uh, your kids this morning, I said, the good news about whatever we've gotten involved in is that none of it can ever extend farther than the grace of God. So no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how much junk you've gotten involved in, we cannot exhaust the grace of God. It will always extend farther than our sin. That's the good news. And what I want to share with you this morning, or today, is I want to share with you what this problem really looks like. Because really we are talking about pornography. We're talking about some things that are even a little bit beyond that. But if you'll go to the next slide, I want to share with you how big this problem is that we're looking at. I've got some statistics up here. And while, yes, statistics can always be manipulated and all that, sometimes they also can reveal the size of the issues that we're dealing with. 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to porn before the age of 18. Lest you think this is a small problem that only affects a small percentage of teenagers, it's not. For those of you who may not be that good at math, that's a majority, like a large majority. 93% of boys and 62% of girls. That means that most teenagers are exposed to pornography. I'm going to pause and let that settle in for a second because sometimes we don't like hearing that. We want to think, good grief, it can't be that big, right? It is. First exposure to porn among boys is 12 years old. Some other statistics even say that the first time exposure for boys is between the ages of 9 to 11. Also, another statistic that is not on here is that the first time that a man will usually get help for a sexual addiction or a porn addiction is around the age of 35 years old. So think about it. Kids are being exposed to pornography, boys especially, between the ages of 9 and 12. And if they get hooked, they're not dealing with it for 25 years. I'm also wanting to tell you that pornographers know this. Don't think... Don't believe anything that the pornographers will tell you about, listen, this is, a, this is adult entertainment. We, we, we absolutely want children to be protected. We do not want any of this to fall in the hands of children. Baloney. Baloney. They know these, these statistics are public information. They know these stats. And you know what they see? A customer. They are targeting your children. They say, if we can get that customer at 10 years old, because the likelihood of a 10-year-old telling their parents that they're looking at porn is way, is pretty low, because it's a terrifying thing, and they know that too. If we can get them hooked on porn at 10, we know we got them at least for 25 years, the majority of them, because very few will actually get that help at 35 years old. So they're looking at it as a consumer. 71% of teens hide their online behavior from their parents. Let that sink in for a second. Lest you think that you really have all the information about your teenager, 71% of teens hide their online behavior from their parents. Now, I thought about putting paper sacks on the tables so that you could like breathe into them and so you don't hyperventilate. These aren't, I'm not, my intention here is not to scare you to death. My intention is sort of to peel the curtain back so that you can see the realities of what's going on in teenagers and what they're being introduced to. And a lot of the information that teens are exposed to online, they are purposely hiding from their parents. And we'll get into that a little bit later. 39% of teens have sent or posted sexually suggestive messages. 
So regardless of just images and things like that, there's sexual banter going on, social networks and things like that. There's sexually suggestive messages. And finally, 83% of boys and 57% of girls have seen group sex online. Now, this statistic reveals to me more about where the porn industry has gone in the last 25 years than just the fact that a majority of teenagers have seen group sex online. When I was a kid, the kind of pornography that was available, first of all, there was a limitation to the amount of porn that I could even get my hands on because to my kid's shock, the internet was not around when I was in high school and college. So they're just, I mean, their eyes get huge when I say that. They're like, you're ancient, you're like a dinosaur. But just trying to get material was difficult. And then the material you could get, even that was limited in terms of the types of porn that were available. It was what we might consider to, today softcore porn. The degradation scale to which porn has progressed over the last 25 years is astronomical. Not just in the amounts of pornography that's available, but the kinds of pornography that's available. Most porn is violent in nature. Lots of pornography has become very um, part-oriented. Parts of a body, not a full body, just parts of a body. It's become very gross and, and totally degrading to the human body and certainly to God and to sexuality. And so the fact that the majority of boys and girls have seen group sex online tells me, yes, it's a terrible thing that they've seen group sex online, but the fact that there's group sex online is disturbing, that there's that kind of pornography that's out there. So what is the most common reaction? The, I want to share with you some of the most common reactions that I hear from parents in dealing with the issue and in hearing about how big this problem is. A lot of parents, a few of them will actually say this to me, but a lot of parents, I can sense that they're feeling it and they're thinking it. And the reaction is, well, not my kid. I mean, yeah, this is a huge problem. Like, like out there, there's this huge problem, you know. But I know my kid. And I, and I know my child's not looking, and they're not part of that 93%, 62%. They're not part of that. Let me remind you of the statistic that says 71% of teens hide their online behavior from their parents. Now, let me say this as a little aside. I do not want you to go out of here today and be the biggest skeptic of your child after you leave here, okay? I don't want, to be, I don't want you to be cynical toward your children, but I do want you to maybe have a little bit more of an understanding that quite possibly your little angel might be struggling with something. Quite possibly your child could be in these statistics. And if that's the case, and there's a great likelihood that they're somewhere within those statistics, how can you come alongside and help them? Because they may be drowning silently. They may be drowning in a secret and for you to be able to see just how enormous this problem is, you might be able to come alongside them and sort of offer kind of some leading questions to maybe encourage them to come out of their shell and their secret. Another reaction that I hear from parents is the typical one, which is, okay, we're locking everything down. This kid's going into a purity prison. I mean, I'm telling you, they're going to have walls around them. There's no access to anything, not a screen in their life. There's not a boyfriend. There's not a girlfriend. We are locking them down. You could sort of take the Mark Twain approach here, 
which he believed that when a child turned 13 years old, you should put them in a 50-barrel drum and feed them through a cork hole. And then when they turn 16, you plug up the hole. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that. We don't need to lock them in prison. But I think that's one of the reactions that a lot of parents have. There's hyperventilating, there's fear, there's panic that's created by seeing how enormous this problem is, and they go, then I just got to cut off every possible avenue that any temptation could come into my, my kid's life. Well, you better get your 50-barrel drum if you're going to do that. And by the way, even that wouldn't work, because guess what they take into that barrel with them? Their own mind. Whatever they've already been exposed to, whatever they can create in their own minds. Sin is not something that comes at us externally. It's something that we're told is, is, is it wells up in the own deceit of our own hearts. So this isn't about locking every single aspect of the avenues of possible temptation in your kid's life. It better be about something different. Another reaction that I see is just the, the normal reactions like shock and disgust and sadness. I mean, we should have, I believe, kind of an emotional response to the reality of just how depraved our culture has gotten, just how uh, disgusting and degrading pornography is. And then also, a lot of parents react, what do I do? What do I do? And that gets us to this question. What's the most important thing when dealing with porn and sexuality with your kids? Like, if I could boil it all down to like, when you're trying to navigate your children through this season of life, of adolescence, what is the foundation of that journey? The next slide tells us, grace and truth. Grace and truth. We're told in John chapter 1 that when Christ came to the earth, he was the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is very much the Sunday school answer, but it's correct. What do you need to bring to bear in navigating your children through this season of adolescence? You need to bring Jesus Christ. Because guess what? You and I, we are not wise enough, we're not strong enough. We, we, just, we can't do it. If you think that, it's gonna, that you have what it takes in yourself to navigate your child through adolescence, then you know what? There needs to be some humility. You need to have a conversation with God where you really, you, you're broken and you repent of that because the bottom line is none of us have what it takes to offer our children in and of ourselves what they need in order to grow up into godly men and women. Because if we think about it, what is our actual job here? I believe our actual job as parents is to train them up. I don't believe it's a good idea for us to have the mindset that many in our culture do, which is saying, how can I make my kids happy? How can I make them happy right now? I have no interest in that. Not that I'm saying I want my kids to be miserable. My job, I believe, as a parent is how can I train this child into a godly man of purity, into a godly woman of purity? Because guess what the majority, for, for most of them, guess what the majority of their life is going to be spent in? Adulthood. <laughs> Childhood is a very short period of time. And this adolescence piece is a very critical part of that journey. It's really where they turn from a boy or a girl into a man or a woman. So I believe we need to have that goal in mind. And if we have that goal in mind, then I think the foundation of that is grace and truth. Because Jesus, that's what he was full of. And so we need to be full of him to bring that to bear with our children. I want to share with you a story that was part of Jesus' ministry that kind of illustrates this idea of what does it look like to bring grace and truth into a very difficult 
season of life or a very difficult situation. In John chapter 8, there was a story where it says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, before I go on, I always, lo- I always am curious about where the dude was in this, right? Yeah, let's bring the woman out here. We throw this woman out here. Forget about the sin that the guy committed, right? So there's already all kinds of problems with their setup. So they're already trying to bring the letter of the law to only one aspect of the problem. And by the way, that's one of the things that needs to be highlighted here. Many times when the scribes and the Pharisees would confront Jesus... They were bringing only the letter of the law. Whereas Jesus kept trying to expose to us the heart of the law. See, these guys were saying, we're clinging to the law of Moses in a way that can manipulate and control and punish people. What Jesus ultimately demonstrates is, listen, the law of Moses was given so that you could see the heart of God. Is that he wants to protect and love and grow his people not punish them, control them, and manipulate them. So Jesus' response is interesting. He bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. That's an odd response to a question, right? Imagine this lady's tossed in front of Jesus. They say, okay, we caught this woman in the act of adultery, so the law says we should stone her. What do you say? I would love to know what he was writing. We don't know that, and I, don't, I won't even speculate on it. But just the response was weird, right? Start doodling in the, in the sand. It almost feels like he's ignoring the question. But I think one of the things that he is doing that's very instructional to us is he is pausing in the midst of this heated circumstance, right? You can imagine the emotions. You can imagine the shame of this woman, and you can imagine the anger and rage of these men. Not necessarily toward the woman, but toward Jesus. They're going to try to catch him. And I think sometimes it's good to pause when you find out your daughter's pregnant. I think sometimes it's good to pause when you discover that your son's been looking at porn. If you need to doodle in the ground, that's fine. Do whatever you got to do. But sometimes it's take a deep breath. Because what happens next, and as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Take another pause. All right, let's, let's evaluate the situation here. I'm perfectly comfortable with your solution as long as the first one to pick up the stone has no sin. Now, let me take a pause and let you think about that. And then what happens? But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you, but listen to this. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He wasn't bipolar, you know, it wasn't grace or truth. It wasn't like, you know what, today is going to be a grace day. 
And then tomorrow's going to be a truth day. No, he was full of grace and truth. And I think this is really important. I can't overstate how important this is in terms of what we bring to bear on our children when they are struggling with these sexual purity issues. Is because it's really easy, and a lot of parents, it's easy to get locked into the truth side, kind of like the scribes and the Pharisees. You were caught. Here's the lines. Let's punish. Instead, what Jesus says, he pauses, he, he bends down in the dirt, and he says, parent, let's take a look into your life. Are you without sin? Are you going to cast a stone at your guilty child? And I love what Jesus does here. He, he basically offers grace and truth to this woman. He says, I'm not going to condemn you, even though, guess what? Of every single person standing in that crowd that day, he's the only one that had a right to pick up a stone because he was without sin. But yet he said, I'm choosing not to give you what you do deserve. Instead, I'm going to invite you into a truth that you get there by grace. He said, I'm not going to condemn you, but I am going to give you an instruction. Go from this place and sin no more. You know what? I would imagine that that woman had a catch in her spirit and, and a catch in her, in her decision the next time she might have been tempted to commit adultery. And not because somebody locked her in a purity prison and not because somebody beat her over the head with the law of Moses, but because somebody was willing to extend grace to her. The God of the universe was willing to say, I actually have the right to pick up a stone, but I'm not going to do it but I am going to call you into a life of purity and away from adultery by that same grace. So we need grace and truth. I'm going to share with you three sort of what I call these essentials in terms of navigating our kids through this period of adolescence in their lives. And it's grace-based coaching, grace-based correction, and grace-based culture. So let's take a look at grace-based coaching first. This is teaching sexual integrity principles. And really, it's trying to answer that question, what are the basics of sex education? Guess what? We do need to teach our children. You can go to the next slide there. We do need to be the ones to teach our children about sex. They're going to get all kinds of other information from other places, but we need to be willing to expressly voice, put our voice into this conversation. A lot of parents kind of think they can like throw a pamphlet at their kid or make suggestions or kind of be passive-aggressive in how they're telling them to be pure without ever just having honest conversations. And what I've put up here is when I talk about basics, these are the basics, like the basics of the basics. First, that sex is good. God created it. Now, if you struggle with that, then that's something you need to wrestle with. You need to wrestle with God through this because he said sex is good. We know this because in Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created us distinctly with sexuality. And after he had created mankind, after he looked at everything he created, he said, it's very good. God said, sex is good. We need to tell our kids, sex is good. It's a good thing. It's something God created. We also need to tell them that your body is good, that God created it. There are some out there that might tell you, listen, everything about your body because, you know, we call it flesh. Oh my goodness, all, it's all bad. Well, there is a distinction in the Bible between flesh when we're talking about your physical body and flesh when you're talking about that sinful nature that we carry in our bodies. But that doesn't mean that your body is evil. That doesn't mean your body is something terrible. Did you know out of all of creation, 
the human form was the only thing that God touched. Everything else, he just said a word, and there's light, there's fish, there's all kinds of things. But with us, guess what he did? He reached down and he touched dirt. God touched us. He said, I'm going to make a man out of this dirt. And then he reached into the man and he made a woman out of the man. God made our bodies. He didn't just speak our bodies into existence. And I love Psalm 139 where he talks about us being knit together in our mother's womb. Who do you think is doing the knitting? And for those of you who have a hard time with seeing some of God's female characteristics, he knits, okay? (laughs) He knits us together in our mother's womb. So your body is good. You need to teach your kids. We, from the time our kids were, you know, little kids having, you know, baths in the bathtub, we called body parts what they are. We said, God made you this way. God made you a boy. God you made you a girl. It's good. And we want to train our kids to know that their body is good and sex is good. Also, by doing that, we're teaching them that their body is valuable and their sexuality is valuable. Because God declared it good, that immediately places intrinsic value on it. Because whatever God calls good has value. And the fact that he looked at humans after everything else was created, because everything else that was created, he said, it's good, it's good, good. Man and woman comes along and he goes, very good. He put the very good stamp on us. And so that means our bodies and our sexuality have a high value. And because of that, that's a training point for teaching your kids that things with high value need greater protection. He put a high value on it and placed it in a particular context, which is that God made sex for marriage. We need to teach our kids unapologetically that sex is made for marriage. One man with one woman in the covenant bond of marriage for life, period. We do not need to be apologetic about that. We don't need to be politically correct about that. We need to tell our kids what God has told us. And he said, guess what I made, mar- what I made sex for? I made it for marriage, period. And by the way, I hope you have a great conversation with your kids this afternoon because that's what I told them this morning, is that it's made for marriage. That is the context. That's the container, so to speak, that God said, I'm putting sex into where it is best expressed and where it is blessed. We need to tell our kids that. Here's the other thing that I think is a basic that we need to teach our kids, that you will be tempted to misuse your sexuality. Guys, I can't tell you how many parents, and I've, I've certainly been one from time to time, where I just kind of want to cross my fingers and go, well, if we just teach them everything they should do, and if they just do all of that, then they'll be fine. They won't face any temptation. The problem with that is if we are pointing to them, to them to Jesus, they're going to struggle. You know why? Because the Bible says that Jesus, the one who never sinned, was tempted in every way just as we are. Yikes. If you have this expectation that if I just get my kids on the right track, if they just know what's right, and if they just always do that, they will never be tempted. Well, for one thing, that's not going to happen over here, right? They always do that. But the other thing, even if they did, the righteous one, Jesus, was tempted. So they're going to be tempted. I think it's better to set your kids up with the truth than to just hope they don't discover it. Set them up with the truth. So many parents are afraid that if they tell their kids they're going to be tempted, that the next day they're going to go out and get pregnant and all these awful things are going to happen. I think the more you can instruct your kids on the realities of the difficulties of living a sexually pure life, you're actually better preparing them because when they see that temptation, they're not like, they're not like I was at 12 years old going, what is this? This is trauma. I don't have a clue how to handle this. Oh my goodness, what do I do? And just stuff it. Instead, they might see it and go, 
Oh yeah, dad told me about that. I mean, it doesn't mean that they won't have, have feelings of temptation, but it won't have the same like kick you in the gut kind of reaction because you're preparing them along the way to know that they will be tempted. Another thing we need to talk about is what I call grace-based correction. How do you respond to sexual stumbles? And really trying to answer that question, what to do if sexual boundaries are crossed? This is usually the place where parents like to camp out. I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you grace-based coaching, correction, and then also uh, culture. But a lot of times, parents, they kind of only want to focus on this part because, hey, we know our kids aren't perfect. We know their kids are, our kids are going to fail and they're going to struggle and things like that. So how do we correct them? How do we lock them down? That kind of stuff. But I want to share with you that I believe if you, get the, if you focus much of your attention on the other two essentials, grace-based coaching and grace-based culture, which we'll see here in a minute, you'll actually spend very little time here in correction. It doesn't mean that your kids won't need correcting. Hey, no matter where we are in life, we all need correction. We all get off course from time to time. We need instruction. We need correction. But sometimes the reason parents feel like this is all they're doing is because they may not be investing time in coaching their kids. They may not be investing time in actually training their kids and teaching them what is healthy sexuality. What does God say about sexuality? How, do, how can we respond in grace and truth to them? So if your kid crosses a line, move toward them, not away. Move toward them in your, in your speech. Move toward them in your attitude. Move toward them even physically. It is a lonely, scary place to be exposed for having stumbled or crossed a line. It's very hard. Think about it. It's hard for us even today, right? As adults, the pressure feels so much more intense as an adolescent. As, as an adolescent. They have so many more things going on hormonally and all kinds of things. It's a scary, frightening, lonely place for them to be when they're either caught, exposed, or they confess. Regardless of how you come to know about this, you need to move toward your child. In the same way, Jesus did not walk away from that woman caught in adultery. He stood right there. He stayed right in the middle of it. He stayed there. You need to remind them that nothing they could do could make you love them less. Because nothing you and I can do could make God love us less. Now, if you struggle with this, if you, if you, when you get brutally honest with yourself, if you realize that you have put your child on sort of a love value continuum, which basically says, if you're doing well, I love you more. If you're doing poorly, I love you less. And sometimes when we get brutally honest, we have to say we've done that to a degree. We need to confess that before God and repent and seek to have God's heart towards our kids, which is, you know what, no matter what they do, no matter what they do, it cannot affect my love for them because nothing they do can affect their value before God. And so they need to know that. Also, you need to talk about the infraction candidly and without shame. Now, this may be harder for you than for them, okay? <laughs> and probably one of the things you're going to discover as we move further and further in this talk is that there's a lot of self-analysis that's going to have to go on as a parent. You're going to have to look at your own life. Now, you might have been thinking that you were going to come here and I was going to give you like seven things to like beat your kids with so that they will be pure the rest of their lives. The fact of the matter is they're looking to you for instruction. They're looking to you for correction. They're looking to you for what does it take to be a man or a woman of great character. 
So if you are not a man or woman of great character, that's the place to start. And so you need to be able to talk candidly about this. This means let's talk about what happened. You know, got pregnant, looking at porn, whatever else. Let's talk about this. And the key here is without shame. You will not have to pour shame on your child. They're carrying it already. You know, one thing, especially when you're talking about children that are growing up with a Christian worldview, sometimes they carry just this extra amount of shame because they know what the truth is. And so the fact that they've crossed a line, whether through ignorance and curiosity or whether through willful defiance, either way, that they're going to have to wrestle with shame. And so you don't need to pile on and add more shame that basically diminishes their worth and their value. You need to say, listen, we're going to talk about this. We're going to deal with this. But there's nothing that could change how I feel about you in terms of my love for you. And there's certainly nothing that I'm going to add into your, into your shame. Now, here's the thing you have to ask. Was the error out of ignorance and curiosity or rebellion and willful defiance or sin? If it was out of ignorance and curiosity, what your kid needs in terms of correction is instruction. Do not discipline your child for having stumbled across the line through ignorance or curiosity. I see a lot of parents when they're, you know, they might discover that their 13 or 14-year-old son, he, you know, somebody showed him pornography at his friend's house or whatever. And these parents, they want to jump into a discipline mode with their kid. And it's like, whoa, time out. Your kid didn't willfully and defiant. I mean, it wasn't a rebellion, an act of rebellion. Somebody introduced this into his life. Somebody poured that into his life. Was it not good for him and not right for him to be looking at that? Absolutely. But what he needs at that point is instruction. All right, let's talk about this line. Let's talk about what happened. Why do you think that line is there? Let's see what God has to say. Let's instruct our kid and then help them to, to know when they're getting close to that line and how to detect that, and then they can move away, away from that. Hey, you know what? Maybe you need to spend some less time at that kid's house. What do you think about that? And they, you know, you just have a conversation about it. It's instruction, not discipline. However, if it was rebellion or willful sin, in other words, they knew where the line was and they knew what they were doing was wrong and they did it anyway. They need discipline. In the same way that if we do anything in our lives where we know where the line is and we do something anyway, God must discipline us, right? If you haven't caught it by now, essentially we are seeking to parent our kids the way God parents us. That's really what it boils down to. He's full of grace and truth, and he deals with us in grace and truth. We need to deal with our kids in grace and truth. When he corrects us, guess what he does? If you stumble into sin, God doesn't discipline you. He instructs you. If you go hard charging into sin willfully, he disciplines you. But even in that, the word tells us in Hebrews that God disciplines those he loves. That gets us back to that second point, right? Nothing could make you love your child any less. Nothing could make God love you any less. Why do we correct and discipline our children? Because we love them. And then I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a little suggestion here that I think can help in the disciplining of your child. Invite them into the solution. A lot of times what ends up happening is, you know, after you breathe into that sack, when you find out whatever's happened has happened and you find out that your kid knew that it was wrong and you know that discipline is necessary, this is usually where mom and dad have a powwow and they come up with all of the restrictions and then they go lay it on the kid. Say, here's the law. This is what it's going to be. And listen, if you've done that, this is a no shame zone, okay? We've all, I hope that we all 
recognize that the reason I opened with what I did with the Tim Hawkins thing is we've all thrown bricks at our kids' heads, okay? We've all, we've all <laughs> screwed up in some way. We're not perfect parents. But I want to invite you to consider another way to approach that situation. Another way would be to actually have that conversation that you would typically have as mom and dad separately, have that conversation with your child. And say, hey, okay, you've clearly, you, you recognize where the line was, you've confessed that, now as part of repentance and, and getting back on track, what do you think could be helpful for keeping you from going down that path again? Now we have, I was introduced, I was telling this talk to our staff, I was kind of sharing with it this last week, and I was sharing this part of it about correction, inviting your kids into this process, and we have one lady on our staff, she's the, she's the mom of five grown kids. And so I glean a lot of wisdom from her. She's a great parent. Her, her, her husband's a great dad. And she said, you know, we've done this with our kids before. And she said, what's amazing, she says, a lot of times they come up with harsher penalties than we would have even come up with. So sometimes it's like they know themselves maybe even better than we do because 71% of teens hide online behavior from their parents, right? That if you invite them into that conversation, they might know the path that they took to get there better than you do. So you trying to make assumptions about how to not get them to go down that path again is saying that your kid has never hidden anything from you and you know exactly, you know your kid better than they know them. You know, if you invite them into that conversation, then you might be able to have them pick kind of what boundary they want to have applied for that season. Here's the other thing that happens. Then you check in for encouragement, accountability, and prayer. It helps so much in accountability and holding your child accountable when you've included them in the solution. Because see, if you come in and you just lay down the law and say, you're going to do this, guess what? You've already created a combative environment. You are the enemy. You are imposing something on me. I'm going to push back to it. We're even told in Scripture, by, by the way, that that is our natural response to law. I didn't know what kind of covetousness was in my being until the law said, do not covet. Then everything covetousness came out of my being, right? So if you come into your kid and say, here's the law, guess what they're naturally going to do? I'm going to push back on it. Whereas if you come in and you say, you know what, my intent here is to help you. I want you to be a a man or woman of, of purity. And so what do you think could help you move in that direction? And when they are part of the solution, then as you hold them accountable, let's say they stumble. Let's say they try to get around whatever it is that they agreed to set up. Then your accountability doesn't look like dad or mom the cop. Your accountability looks like, you know what, I want to hold you to your word because part of being a man or woman of integrity is keeping your word. Did you not agree to say that this was going to be what you were going to do for this season, right? See, I want you to grow up into being a man or a woman of integrity. And to do that, you've got to be able to face not only what you do, but the consequences of what you do and take responsibility for that. You said that this is what you were going to do for the next 30 days. But here we are on day seven, and this is what you did. Can you tell me what's going on and how you're going to take responsibility for that? You're not the cop anymore. You're actually trying to help your child grow into a man or woman of integrity. And it shifts, it shifts the whole paradigm about how you see correction. You're correcting your child because you love them, foundation of grace and truth, and you're trying to lead them to a place where they're going to be in adulthood. It's not about necessarily that moment. You've got to be thinking further down the road than that. That moment is scary. That moment is difficult. That moment can be sleepless nights. But keep the end in mind. 
I want this child to grow into a man or woman of integrity. It's not about them at 14. It's about them at 25 and 40 and 60. And how can what I'm doing here teach them how to take responsibility and own my own sin and take the consequences and be able to move forward in grace and truth? And then the final area that I think is really essential is grace-based culture, cultivating an atmosphere of care and growth. And here we're trying to answer this question of what atmosphere is your home creating? Now, this is, I, I took this from my good friend, uh, Philip Telfer. He uh, is part of, he's the founder of Media Talk 101. He's got some great ideas here for how to develop a culture in your home that promotes purity, promotes your child growing into a man or woman of integrity. The first thing is model purity. So here's the thing. This comes back to you, right? Dads, we cannot have a voice for integrity in our son's lives or our daughter's lives if we're looking at porn, if we're doing things that are sexually inappropriate, if we're engaged in conversations that we don't need to be engaged in at work, if we essentially are feeding our lust, we cannot have a voice for integrity in our sons' and daughters' lives. Ladies, if if you're reading romance novels that are raunchy, if you are involved in conversations of sexual nature with your girlfriends, I mean, all kinds of things like that, you've also lost the ability to have a voice for integrity in your daughter's and son's lives. We need to be modeling. Now, understanding, remember the foundation was what? Grace and truth, right? Do you think any of us are going to model perfectly for our children? No, this is why we keep having to point them to Jesus. But here's the thing. We need to be willing to embrace and accept the responsibility that we expect our kids to embrace and accept. When they stumble, what do we expect? Hey, we expect them to take responsibility for it, repent, and move forward, right? We need to model that for them. When we stumble, we need to be able to repent and move forward for that, from that. And so it needs to be in grace and truth. But guess what? Your kids are looking at you whether you want them to or not. They're looking to you to be the model. And you, whether you accept that responsibility or not, you are the model for your kids. I've had plenty of guys, we do these three-day intensive workshops for men who are struggling with porn issues and just trying to break free from sexually addictive behaviors. And one of the things, one of the insights that a lot of guys get there is especially the guys who still have kids at home, especially sons. And this is one of the things that breaks them down to their core is they realize that although they have been trying to hide this flaw in their character, their son has been seeing dad model what a sex addict looks like. And they realize they can't get back that time They can't get back the time. The good news is God's a redeemer of time. So wherever you are, parents, right now, if you are personally struggling with some secrets, if you've got some things that need to be dealt with, deal with it. Let God restore and heal you so that you might be able to redeem the time that you have from here forward with your children and see God do amazing things. I also think mentoring your kids regarding purity is important. This is a little bit different than the the way I consider coaching. Coaching, I think, is, like a, is sort of like the, the tag team parenting education. Like, like as mom and dad, you're both educating your children on sexual purity and, and on God's design for, for sex. Mentoring, I see more as, okay, listen, moms, 
you are going to be a better mentor for daughters than even a dad could. Hey, dads can coach their daughters. Dads can speak into their daughters. Dads can show their daughters what a man of God looks like. But dads aren't a, aren't a woman. There's something to this mentorship. Think of it in terms of like a master apprentice. A woman is going to be the best master of a female apprentice. She's going to be able to teach that, that girl how to become a woman. The same way where a man is going to be able to mentor and train that boy up into what it means to be a man. I'm not saying that there can't be any sort of cross thing here, but it's like, really, men are going to be best equipped for helping boys become men, and women are going to be best equipped for helping girls become women. And that's what I mean in this mentoring aspect. Moderate media in the home. What this means is, what's the volume of media that's in the home? So this is more about just saying, hey, what are we doing regarding the volume? What we've uh, done this year with our kids is, when school year starts up again, when the school year started up again, it was like, okay, Monday through Thursday, no, no TV, no screens, that kind of thing. And then weekends, you know, we can watch some, some media. So I think you need to have some moderation to be able to say, okay, if you're perpetually and constantly in front of media, it might not be telling you the truth about your sexuality. You need to monitor your children's use of internet, TV, phones, etc. Now, I want to share with you my personal philosophy for, toward this, and I, it, I understand not everybody will adopt this, but it, it really helps me as a, as a parent and just as a human being. One of the things that, that I've learned being in this ministry is that there's nowhere in Scripture where God has a different standard for sexual purity for adults than He does for children. The standard is the same. <laughs> the standard is not even a hint of sexual immorality, Ephesians 5.3. That's the standard. It doesn't matter whether you're 10, whether you're 50. So one of the things that, that I do in my own home is, there is there's nothing that I have, an iPhone, iPad, whatever, that, any, that none of my kids could pick up at any time and look at whatever they wanted to on my phone. They can pick it up anytime they want. We've made this monitoring an interactive thing. It's not just, hey, parents have all the wisdom on purity and all this kind of stuff, and so therefore, it's just us constantly monitoring children. It's like, hey, guess what? We're all held to the same standard. Kids, you can pick up my phone anytime you want. There's not going to be anything on there that's inappropriate because I want to model for you what a man of integrity looks like. And so you are free to look into my life as the same way I'm looking into your life. Now, clearly, there are boundaries to this, you know, uh, your bedroom is off limits when we're talking about sexuality, okay? <laughs> this is not a back and forth kind of a thing. But as far as kind of how you are handling media, are you willing to let your kids look in on your life in the same way that you would expect that you can look in on theirs? Now, there's obviously there's some things that break down here. Like if you've got, I mean, the reason I'm saying this to you guys is y'all are parents of 5th through 12th graders, you know, if there's a parent of a four-year-old, I'm like, don't give them your iPhone. They're going to break it, okay? But as far as the, the morality, the integrity, we want to be able to say this goes both ways. I want my kids to be able to look in on my life and be able to see what I'm doing the same way that I want to be able to look in on their life and monitor what they're doing. Motivate them to pursue Christ in purity and finally meditate on God's word personally and as a family. We need to create this culture in our homes that is saying it's important to take seriously our purity because God takes it seriously. He says, I've placed a high value on your sexuality, so much so that there's only one environment in which I want you to experience it, and that's marriage. 
Did you know that the rarer something is, the more valuable it is, right? God has made sex very rare, at least from his perspective. There's one place and one place only that sexual expression is to happen, and that's in marriage, which means that it's hugely valuable. It's extremely valuable. We need to teach that to our kids through coaching, through correcting, and through a culture in our homes that is going to help them grow into the man or woman of purity. And that's really where I think this goes. The next slide, to me, sort of sums it up. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Parents, our job here is to help our kids navigate into adulthood. Our job is not to try to fix and resolve every single issue they stumble with. I believe it's better to, what do they say, you know, if you, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. I believe we need to teach our kids how to fish when it comes to being men or women of sexual integrity. And then we are, we are preparing them for a lifetime of godly integrity, not just a moment of correction where, okay, I did what mom and dad told me to do. Now they're off my back and nothing in my heart has changed. I haven't, I haven't really realized the value of my sexuality or my body. I've just done what I had to do in order to get to a place where I could keep going in the direction that I was going. So let's help our kids navigate this time with grace and truth. The final slide that I want to show you are just some resources that I think can be helpful. There are some books here that I think are helpful. I especially recommend that book by Mark Laser called Talking to Your Kids About Sex. The reason I like that one is because he basically goes from birth through 20 years old and the different developmental stages, emotionally, spiritually, physically, that you can help, that kind of helps instruct you in talking to your kids. Then there's some ministries and some websites here. I did want to share with that, that bottom part there about Covenant Eyes Software. If you go to that link or to the, the little handout that's in your packet that we gave, you will get 30 free days. You'll get 30 days to try, try that out. We highly recommend that. We use it at our office. It's a great accountability software. It's not just filtering, but it has accountability. And I, to be honest with you, I recommend that even more because it's more relational. It's one thing to just like throw a filter on a computer and just think that it's safe. The problem is 300,000 pornographic pages are going up on the internet daily. So even the best filters can't filter everything. But if you have what they call accountability software, which is keystroke logging, it means everything that is done on that computer is logged, and then there's an account that you can go into and check it all out. And so that way it creates relationship, because guess what? If something pops up or is flagged, it's, it's not a filter doing it. It's mom or dad having a conversation with a child rather than just crossing your fingers and hoping that a filter will, will do it. So Dave, are you going to come up and we have some questions? I'm going to leave this up here too so that if you need to copy it down, you can get those resources. All right, so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, just fire off some questions here and have Jonathan take a stab at each one of these questions. Um, Let's give him a hand for being here today. I really appreciate him being a part of this. Got some great questions from you guys out there. So uh, one of the questions that we had was, uh, please define pornography and address guys and girls in that. Sure, that's a great question. And, and it's a little bit hard to define. If you went to Webster's Dictionary, it would say, obscene writings, images, or pictures typically not of a, how do they put it, artistic nature. Blah. 
I mean, that's a crappy definition of pornography, in my opinion. Because I really believe that fundamentally to me, the definition of pornography is anything that wants to elicit sexual lust in my being. So anything that tempts me to exhibit sexual lust. So that can be a wide array of things, right? Now, typically, we're going to keep that in like a category of things that are image-related, image, videos, things like that. But I typically try to broaden the definition out there because, remember, God doesn't just look at our behavior. He looks at our hearts. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you look on a woman to lust after, you've committed adultery in your heart. So anything that wants to elicit lust from our being. So I think that crosses the line of male-female. It doesn't really matter. It's, I think sometimes, typically, boys are going to be way more tempted visually, whereas girls, a lot of times, are going to be way more tempted auditory by what they hear, the words they hear, the charm that a guy might be able to put out. Um, it, typically, women aren't going to be as visually stimulated or tempted as guys are. How much should parents share about their own past sexual temptation? That's a great question. And that's the question that people ask me a lot of times. Like, how much have you shared with your kids, you know? Um, and the, the answer to that is I think there are age-appropriate times to sort of unfold your story. I personally believe, and this, and this could just be because of my history and what I do for a living, but I personally believe that we need to build greater transparency in our relationship with our kids. One of the things that I struggle with growing up personally, I had a wonderful godly dad and a wonderful godly mother. But one of the things that I missed growing up was I never got to understand their brokenness as a human being. And I think they were just, part of it is because I think they were part of a generation culturally, Christian culturally, that essentially said, well, we want to train up our kids, right? So we want to train them up into godliness, so we need to model godliness. Not realizing that part of modeling godliness is highlighting the grace of God for a weak sinner like me, right? Instead, it was more like, show your kids that everything's cool, and this is what a godly man or godly woman looks like. I believe we need to unfold our story. Like, for instance, my kids right now, they're 13, 12, and 10. The 10-year-old doesn't know more of some of the specific details of my story. The 13-year-old the and the 12-year-old, they know the full general story. As they get older, I'm going to tell them even more of the, of the story. And here's the thing. What I've found interesting is kids handle it no problem. I think we're the ones that get all freaked out about being honest and transparent with our kids. And I think, so what we need to do is we need to kind of overcome our own fears and our own shame and ask God for wisdom. I think also if you're in, if you're in small groups as, as families or if you're in small groups with other couples, this is a great topic to discuss among yourselves and say, hey, what have you done and, and how much have you shared with your kids and how would you go about sharing that? And for me, I've done it mainly one-on-one -on -one with my kids. My wife and I, we have conversations sometimes in the car. We've had some conversations with our kids all together. But a lot of times I'll do it one-on-one -on -one with maybe my oldest daughter or one-on-one -on -one with my son and just be like, hey, let me tell you about when I was your age. That's a great way to do it too, by the way. Let me tell you what, was I, what I was struggling with when I was your age. You know that kind of stuff going on with you? And it's amazing conversations that you can have just by saying, let me retell my life story from where you're at right now and see if we can connect on, on that level. 
So uh, this is a mom asking a question here. So what happens when your husband is involved in pornography and possibly for generations now before as well and you fear for your sons? Well, that's a valid fear. I mean, I think it's only natural to be afraid because it's like what's been modeled for your sons. Well, sexual addiction, right? But here's the thing. Before I get further down the line in that that answer, I really want to remind everybody that, listen, whatever we can be afraid of, whatever we can be ashamed of, whatever can, can cause anxiety and just overwhelm us, nothing, nothing can overwhelm the grace of God to transform our lives. So my encouragement to that particular question is, first and foremost, pray, pray for your children, pray for your sons that the seed of grace might be placed into their heart, that the seed of Christ might be placed into them, that that would be what is watered in them, despite the modeling that they've gotten from their dad. The second thing I would say is I think there needs to be direct confrontation and accountability regarding what that dad is going to do in terms of his own personal struggle. Uh, Just so you know, I mean, that's our sweet spot in ministry is helping men overcome sexual addictions. And so he's going to have to take ownership. I wish it was as easy as saying, hey, you need to get help. And he goes, well, oh, great, I'll go do that, you know. Uh, typically, there's a lot of resistance in that because keep in mind, remember, average age of first-time exposure, 9 to 12. Average age that a guy gets help, 35. We're talking about a very tangled, tight web that has trapped this man. Again, not more powerful than the grace of God to transform him, But a lot of times there's a lot of resistance to that initial confession and actually getting into the light and getting help. But that is what he will need to do. If he wants to change the course kind of of his own family tree and his own own life and also be able to speak something of integrity into his sons. But it doesn't, don't think that it locks those boys into that destiny. Think of Joseph in the Bible. I mean, hey, what a lousy father. We know that, you know, uh, that uh, Jacob was was a man of God, but we also know he's a big-time lying dad who, who played favor, all kinds of stuff. But Joseph came along in that big, gigantic, dysfunctional family and totally had a different, different destiny and different line. This question is a little bit long, but I'm going to try to summarize it for you. Um, basically, the question is, you know, we can kind of monitor what happens at home, at least try to, but how do we help them filter out things that are outside the home. So they go to school and the friend has an iPad, an mm-hmm. iPhone, or movies at night. How do, we, how do we help them filter out those things as well? Yeah, and that to me, that comes a lot, of, a lot back to the coaching and the culture. It's like, okay, are you having conversations with your kids about the things they are exposed to at school or wherever else? And sometimes it happens when they start getting a job, you know, they start working fast food or something like that. There's all kinds of other influences. And so I think... Um, it's hard, you know, obviously we can't be with our kids 24-7. And so we're not necessarily as concerned about when they're with us, right? We're concerned about when they're not around us. That's when we're most concerned. But this is where I think um, being a praying parent is huge. And, and please understand, this is not a cop-out answer, okay? I believe we need to be praying for our children. There is incredible power in prayer. I can't tell you how many times I've had even in my own life where I felt a temptation and resisted only to find out later that one of my buddies at that moment was praying for me. And so we need to be praying for our kids. We need to let our kids know that we are praying for them. I also think too that, um, again, just increasing and being intentional about initiating those conversations. 
uh, one of the things that I think we get lulled into, and it's, it's just kind of natural for us to do this, is that the topic of sexuality and porn and these kind of things only come up when some, some failures happen, right? It's only, only come up when it's time to correct. But I think that's not, I mean, we need to set the tone that these are regular conversations that we're going to initiate because most of the time kids are not going to initiate these conversations. But we're going to initiate just kind of as check-in. Hey, what's been going on? Let me tell you what I've been learning about purity and this kind of stuff. And why don't you tell me what you've been learning? There have been things that you've been facing at school. Yeah, well, okay, so you faced that temptation. How would you handle that? Okay, great. What are some things you could have done better? Maybe you could do better next time. What are some things that you could maybe even say in that situation? Just start asking a lot of questions and then through the questions, kind of offering some suggestions of how they can handle temptation and better move toward standing up when they're out in school or wherever else where these other influencers are coming up. Uh, how do you respond in love and grace to a child or student who tells you they are homosexual? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one we're getting more and more nowadays. Um, I think you, I, I don't think you respond any differently. Now, I mean, that may be difficult because our natural inclination is, well, there's something different about this kid. There actually isn't. There's something that is very confused in this child. The same way that a child struggling with any other kind of heterosexual lust issues or pornography issues is also confused. To me, I believe it's a truth issue. It's, the, it's a reality that says, listen, nothing's going to cause me to love you any less. I'm going to keep moving toward you. But in the same way that Jesus says, I don't condemn you, but I'm also going to give you the truth, I'm going to keep telling you the truth. And I think it's, to me, a lot of times what I've heard from the people that we've dealt with that have, that have gone through this is that the atmosphere makes all the difference in the world. Is it an atmosphere of judgment and condemnation or is it an atmosphere that Jesus created with this woman caught in adultery who says, I'm going to stand next to you and I'm going to keep loving you and telling you the truth. And I wish there was like a really tight answer to this one, you know, but there isn't. It's a hard, it's a very hard issue. And it's something that more and more parents are having to face. But this to me is where I believe the endurance in grace and truth as the foundation is key as a parent. Don't bail out on your kid. It'll get frustrating. They'll probably say hateful things to you. They'll probably do all kinds of things that want to try to prove to you that they are who they say they are. That's okay. Just keep loving your kid and, and creating an invitational environment in your relationship with them. So I'm going to try to, I've got two questions. I want to kind of merge these together somehow because they sort of touch on the same ideas. But um, the basic idea they're wanting to know is, um, at some point as a parent, like when the kids are young, we, we do try to limit lots of things. We put lots of rules in place to limit them and their exposure to things. But as they get older, how do you, um, uh, I'll just read the question. How about that? We're to train our kids. <laughs> it's hard to summarize these. We're to train our kids in the way they should go. How do you balance that with decisions they make that you do not agree with as parents? And then the second question is, uh, suggestions for helping our sons select and use social media without taking over. So kind of that balance as they get older, how do you begin yeah. to kind of release some things but also still have your thumb on some things at the same time? Well, to me, in terms of answering the question about, okay, what do you do when kids start doing things that you don't agree with? Certainly if it's a sin issue, you step in. If it's a preference issue, parents grin and bear it, okay? 
they're going to they're gonna make decisions about certain things that you're like, seriously, you want that phone instead of that phone? I mean, I mean that phone's okay. I mean, s- silly things like that. But believe it or not, those can become big deals. In, but if it's a sin issue, if they're doing things that are sinful, then I think you need to step in and correct. As far as, like, you know, just, again, navigating this time. What was the second question about the boy? The, oh, sorry, you already dropped it. Um, basically, how do you help them choose like wise social networking? Use wisdom in social networking and those kinds of things. Oh yeah. Well, I, I would tell you this. Uh, one of the things that we've done in our home, like our daughter has a has a phone. Our our son asks every day if he can have a phone. Um, and so, but one of the things that we've done last year, we gave our daughter a phone for her birthday. And basically, what we've done with every single device, our son has a Kindle, different things like this. What we've done with every single device that we've given our children is they know that we start from a position of trust. So in other words, while we give them certain instruction about it, say, listen, th- there's a reason why we don't have certain things on here. Yes, we, and, and the way we've done it with our kids is we want them to verbally ask us to put apps on their, phone, on their phone or their Kindle because we want it to be relational. Keep in mind, we can monitor those things, right? So we can go and pick up their Kindle or pick up their phone. If we see something that's not on there, we have a conversation because trust has been broken. But we want to start with our kids from a position of trust because we say, listen, trust is valuable. We want to trust you. We don't want to start with the assumption that, you know, you're going to do something stupid and you're going to do something sinful and you're going to cross the line. Well, guess what? You're just setting them up to do it. Instead, we want to say, we believe that you can make right choices. We believe that you can make healthy choices. And you know what? If you're struggling with something about a choice, talk to us. We can help you with that. So in all of those devices and things like that, we personally have chosen to start from trust, and then if trust is broken, we go into that, there's correction that needs to take place, and there may be a season where we've got certain limitations on that, so that they can earn trust back, and then they might be able to earn the device or whatever else it is back. So we've just, we start with trust. How do you handle a situation when the parents are divorced and pretty much anything goes at the other parent's house? Oh, man. This is where I tell you, I, I don't have all the answers, okay? I don't know. I mean, we're parents, right? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, this one comes up a lot too, and, and this, is, this to me is, is one of those kind of like boundaries issue kind of thing where I believe that you have to kind of work through in your own heart, okay, to what degree am I going to allow exposure of my kids? And, how, and I mean, how do I limit that? And honestly, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know. I don't know what you do there. So whoever asked that question, I'm sorry. I, I, I really don't know what to do in that situation. This is a similar question, a little bit of a different bent, though. What if you as a single parent are the mother and the father in the home? Yeah, and that's a great question. And, of course, this is pretty common, too. Um, I'm going to share, I'm going to encourage you to primarily be the mother. Uh, I know that there's, a, there's certain hats you have to wear that are sort of that fatherly role and those kind of things. But what I'm going to strongly encourage you to do is get your kids plugged into a place where there are godly men that can mentor your children. They're never going to be their dad, but they can be a father influence in that child's life. Because mom, that's too much weight for you to bear. God did not intend you to bear all of that load. I know you're carrying it right now, but to whatever degree you can sort of hand some of that off to some guys that might be able to come along and mentor your kids and and help them from that fatherly perspective. Again, not replacing dad, but being able to be a father influence, I think that's going to be beneficial in the long run for you and your kids.
Uh, this parent wants to know, how do you differentiate between uh, dating versus courtship and how it compares to playing the field in our culture? Yeah, I, you know, this is one of those things where it's real, I mean, we want to draw all these really clear lines. And my personal opinion is I think the, the lines between dating and courtship are at best fuzzy. And I, I firmly believe that if we, will, if we will just have conversations with our kids, if we will just help to set a culture and coach them in a, in a direction toward purity and continue to highlight the reason why we're doing that, that God is the one who placed a value on your body and your sexuality, and he's the one that established the context where it's to be fully expressed. I think then some of these pressures that young people feel they won't feel to the same degree because they'll be realizing, wait, why would I go see how far I can go without crossing a line when God has placed such a high value on this that I want to really save this thing for what it's meant for? And so I think sometimes it's more of a culture thing. If we can, in our homes, if we can be steering our kids more and more to that value mentality towards their sexuality, they're still going to have desires. They're still going to want to do certain things like dating I do think a good practical idea is encourage group activities. You know, encourage group activities that are going to be real public, encourage things where they can get to have like groups of friends rather than this exclusive stuff that really heightens the temptation level sexually. And so I don't know if I have anything else to say on that. Okay, one last question. How do you present Jesus as a passionate God so that someone experiences him as the satisfier? Our typical do-good, try-harder Christianity leaves all of us dry and empty. Yeah, and that's a great... I don't even know if I have to answer that because I think that is the answer, <laughs> that God is a passionate God. Like I mentioned to some of the students earlier today, I said, you know, there's actually language in the Bible in which God is talking about His affection for His people that He uses the same terminology that He uses to describe sexual intimacy in marriage. And we kind of go, ooh... Make you feel a little nervous. So what are you saying, God? You want to be so close to me that it's the same as like sexual intimacy? And he says, yes. That's exactly what he's saying. That's the kind of passion and pursuit that God has of us. This, to me, the answer to that question comes back to that modeling issue. Are we in such a passionate, intimate relationship with God as parents that it creates a thirst and a hunger in our children for that same kind of passionate, intimate relationship with God. And I think it's amazing. We can, we can change entire generations if we will actually take seriously the gift of sexuality that God's given us and the gift of faith that he's given us, that we have a God who loves us so deeply that he said, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to treat you the way your sins deserve, but I'm going to treat you in grace and love. And I think when we do that, then it sort of kind of uh, whets the appetite for our kids to go, well, I kind of want what dad has. I kind of want what mom has because they've got some kind of relationship with God that is really attractive and it's really passionate and it's really intimate. And then I think you can have a lot richer conversations with their kids about the struggles that they're facing because they realize, you know what? The only one that can actually satisfy the depths of my being is Jesus. And am I willing to make him first? And when he's first, a lot of this other stuff kind of falls into place. You start seeing more clearly the temptations. You start seeing more clearly what kind of decisions you need to make as a teenager because of, you know, boys chasing you or you seeing girls or whatever. So I think that's it. All right, I'm going to um, give, let's give him a hand once again for, for joining us today.
And I just want to say again, I really appreciate you all being out here um, this afternoon. Um, we know Tim and I both, um, I just want to share something just from our heart quickly, and then we'll kind of wrap up here in a second. Um, but we've been doing this thing for a while, youth ministry, and we know things have changed quite a bit, even in the last 10 years. I mean, I was telling the kids earlier, you know, I graduated high school in 1995, almost 20 years ago, and this is when the internet had just kind of come on the scene. And, and I knew as a college student that um, I would not be able to withstand the temptation if I had the computer internet access in my own room. I just knew it was going to be a failure from the beginning. So um, I knew I had to choose to not have that exposure to that at that age. And, uh, and, and now, and that was back when we had dial-up. Remember the annoying sound with the dial-up deal? So that was dial-up where everything's really slow. And now they've got the entire world in their pocket or in their purse. And they've got access immediately, very quick access. And so, um, so I know, because I don't think people have changed a whole lot. I know we still struggle with temptation. So I know that um, they're struggling. Um, what I want to encourage you to do is, um, is to have these conversations with your students um, sooner rather than later. Don't wait for them to come to you or to mess up or for you to catch them before you start having these kinds of conversations with them. Um, I, honestly, I'm going to push a little bit on, on, I know some of the, in our culture, it's, it's an expectation and entitlement that I should have an iPhone at the age of four, whatever the age is now, and, uh, or an iPad or some kind of um, laptop for my room, or Netflix streaming. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so I want to encourage you as parents to be very vigilant um, as you address these kind of external things we've talked about, but also to be very vigilant as you, we address the internal part of this, the, sh- the real shepherding hard work that has to be done uh, with these students. I tell my students that when it comes to these kinds of issues, it's really like a two-front war. It's the external war, which is, okay, we're going to talk about covenant eyes. We're going to talk about your iPad, your iPhone, who you're spending time with, dating, not dating. Those kinds of things are like the external war. But the real internal war is going to be what Colossians talks about when, when Paul says, um, put sin to death. And that's more of an internal spiritual thing that goes on there where you've got to do the hard work of, of discussing it with your students and talking through um, these kinds of heart issues and not just addressing the behavioral issues that we so, we so easily fall into. So it's got to be a two-front war, an internal thing, but also an external thing as well. And they've both got to work together. And I think your students have to see in you this desire that you're willing to go there with them um, in the internal stuff as well as the external stuff. And so that's been the whole purpose of this conference uh, uh, today. And um, I know Jonathan said that you had um, those packets on the table. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Mic off. Sorry. I, I also wanted to share with you, uh, on your way out, you're going to be given, or I guess if they want to pass them out now, but it, uh, there's a little sheet here that I put, just kind of the seven principles of grace-based purity parenting. And it's kind of a little bit of the stuff we talked about, but just kind of a little sheet that you can go, okay, what are some of these basic principles? And then I've got a little thing there called, so what? Like, okay, so what are the questions about that can help you begin applying grace to your parenting with your kids. Also, there is a little practical tool that we brought. Uh, it's called Unfiltered. It's put out by Covenant Eyes. It's called uh, Protecting Your Family Online. And it's a little parent's how-to guide. It really kind of walks you through how to talk to your kids about pornography and the Internet and some of those things. We have those out on our table, and we're, we're just asking for a $2 donation to help cover the cost of these. But these can be a helpful little tool just with the kind of the practicalities of the Internet stuff and the porn 
uh, protection in your in your home. All right, so um, let me go ahead and pray for us. And if you guys want to pick up any of the literature outside, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, I'll go ahead and pray for us, and we can uh, be dismissed. God, we thank you so much for these parents and for their um, desire and their commitment to um, have homes that are that are that are pure homes, Father, and homes where their students can struggle honestly and openly, and they can be honest about sin and and address it. Um, we pray that. Um, you give them great wisdom as they as they go home and navigate these kinds of things with their students. We pray for our students that um, they'd be open and honest. We pray that um, they would not hide in the dark. We pray that they'd come out and, and be in the light. And we would know that um, whenever we confess our sin, that you heal us from our sin. And uh, we pray that happens um, as a result of what's happened today in junior high, high school, and with the parents here today, Father. And uh, we thank you so much for being a, a God that is gracious to us. We pray that um, as these parents step into back into their world, Father, that they would be people who are vessels of grace just like you are, and that um, there would not be any shame in the family, but there would be just people who want to love their students gracious, graciously and lead them to, uh, to the light, Father. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. If you guys could just kind of bust your tables, please, and there's trash cans throughout the room. And uh, thank you so much for coming today.